When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. A year after the largest protest movement in American history, the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020, one of the key books of American and African American history is being published in a definitive new edition. Black Reconstruction by W.E.B. Du Bois, the pioneering work of revisionist scholarship published originally in 1935 and out now from the Library of America, edited by Eric Foner and Henry Louis Gates Jr., who join us now. Henry Louis Gates teaches at Harvard, where he's the Alphonse Fletcher University professor and director of the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research. He's written many books, including Stony the Road, Black Reconstruction, White Supremacy, and the Rise of Jim Crow. And of course, he's widely known as the host of many documentary films for PBS, including a four-hour series on Reconstruction two years ago. He's also, of course, known for his wonderful PBS series, Finding Your Roots. New season starts January 4th. My favorite from this past year was Angelica Houston, where she bursts into tears when she learns that an ancestor of hers freed his slaves in his will. We talked about it here. Skip Gates, welcome back. Thanks, John. Eric Foner, of course, taught history at Columbia for a long time. His work on Reconstruction and the Civil War has won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize. He's also written for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back. Yeah, nice to see you again, John. Well, let's start with each of you reading a paragraph or two. Skip? Well, if it's okay, I would like to read a passage from a book that occasioned, in part, Du Bois's decision to write Black Reconstruction. And it was from an exceedingly popular account of Reconstruction written by the journalist Claude Bowers. It was called The Tragic Era, and it was published uh, at the end of the Jazz Age, at the end of the Harlem Renaissance, 1929. And it was another history of Reconstruction as a form of quote-unquote Negro rule in which corrupt and morally degenerate African-Americans demonstrated that they were unfit for freedom, much less for governing themselves and, my God, governing over white people. I quote directly from the tragic era. Freedom, it meant idleness and gathering in noisy groups in the streets. Soon they were living like rats in ruined houses and miserable shacks under bridges built with refuse lumber in the shelter of ravines and in caves in the banks of rivers. Freedom meant throwing aside all marital obligations, deserting wives and taking new ones and an indulgence in sexual promiscuity that soon took its toll in the victims of consumption and venereal disease, jubilant and happy the Negro who had his dog and a gun for hunting, a few rags to cover his nakedness, 
and a dilapidated hobble in which to sleep, was in no mood to discuss work. Unquote. The book published by Houghton Mifflin was a bestseller and a selection of the Literary Guild. The book went through 12 subsequent hardcover printings. Anna Julia Cooper, the pioneering Black feminist, the principal of the famous M Street School in Washington, wrote to Du Bois, urging him to write about Reconstruction in a way that would forcefully respond to Bowers and to Eric's predecessors in the Columbia History Department, the Dunning School. And she said, thou art the man to do it. And Du Bois did it. Claude Bowers, the tragic era. We've never heard from Claude Bowers on our show before. So uh, <laughs> let me make a quick point about Claude Bowers. Now that we've heard some of his views, Claude Bowers, among other things, was appointed ambassador to Spain by Franklin D. Roosevelt. All during the 1930s, he was the American ambassador to Spain. My point is that at that time, completely overt racism, as we heard, did not disqualify you at all from a high position. Indeed, the Democratic Party, people admire Roosevelt greatly, for sometimes for good reason. But uh, on questions of race, uh, that was just not something of interest to him. They didn't think it was racist. The, the general opinion was that this was an accurate account right. of this unfortunate experiment gone mad, allowing Negroes to rule over white people and themselves in the 12 years after the Civil War. And Du Bois, of course, countered this and uh, denounced it in Black Reconstruction, particularly the final chapter, the propaganda of history, in which he took the entire history profession and Bowers and many others to task for totally distorting the history of Reconstruction. Let me just read you a few sentences from that chapter. Du Bois writes, I write in a field devastated by passion and belief. Naturally, as a Negro, I cannot do this writing without believing in the essential humanity of Negroes and their ability to be educated, to do the work of the modern world. But as a student of science, I want to be fair, objective, and judicial. But armed and warned with all this, I stand at the end of this writing literally aghast at what American historians have done to this field, aghast at the overt racism and just distortion of facts that the existing literature of Reconstruction represented. And uh, Du Bois wrote Black Reconstruction in order to set the record straight. And Eric, do you want to just say a few words about your own predecessors at Columbia University? Yes, we have a lot to answer for in the Columbia University History Department, the so-called Dunning School, named after my predecessor, William A. Dunning, who taught the Civil War era uh, around the turn of the century, 1900 and more, and John W. Burgess uh, in the Political Science Department. They were the uh, progenitors of what we call the Dunning School. Skip uh, explained a little bit about, via Bowers about what their views were. Reconstruction was a terrible mistake because of giving some modicum of power to former slaves who were incapable of exercising it intelligently or properly. And the Dunning School dominated historical writing on this period way into the 20th century, into the 1950s. It was still being, those works were still being cited by courts in decisions 
relating to civil rights and issues like that. It wasn't really until the 60s with the civil rights revolution that a new generation of scholars began dismantling the edifice of the Dunning School. Du Bois had, of course, started that out, but uh, Du Bois's book was not really used in the academic world. It was, a, it was sold pretty well, Black Reconstruction, but it was, uh, it was not considered serious history by the uh, history uh, profession until the 1960s and after. Go back to Birth of a Nation. We tend to think Birth of a Nation was about the Civil War and slavery. It wasn't, it was about Reconstruction. We, America collectively, with very powerful interests in the former Confederacy, but also in the North, um, powerful Northern capitalist interests, as Du Bois pointed out, wanted to erase this 12-year experiment in inter, interracial democracy. They couldn't literally do it, but they could certainly do it by taking control of the narrative. Why was that important? We tend to forget that until 1910, 90% of all black people in America lived in the South. South Carolina, Mississippi, and Louisiana were majority black states, John, and Georgia, Alabama, and Florida were almost majority black states. In 1867, because of one of the Reconstruction Acts, in March 1867, black men got the right to vote in 10 of the 11 former Confederate states. So I call the summer of 1867 the first freedom summer. And 80% of the eligible men, eligible black men, who could register to vote, registered to vote. That's amazing, 80%. And the overwhelming percent of them by far were illiterate, of course. And with the urging of their wives and women and through churches and other civic groups, they registered great debates in the black community about who to vote for. In 1868, they voted. 500,000 black men cast their votes. We, you know, it's reasonable to assume for Ulysses S. Grant. Now, Grant won overwhelmingly in the Electoral College, but he won the popular vote by just over 300,000 votes. So you could say black men who were formerly enslaved had elected a president of the United States. Even people who were liberal in the North who were against slavery as an institution thought this is too much. And so within 12 years, and this is an oversimplified version that I'm giving, but within 12 years, and, and to quote Du Bois, the Compromise of 1877 created an alliance between white capitalist interests, northern industrialists, and southern planters, ex-slaves, and indeed all workers lost out. Yeah, let me, let me add to what Skip said that uh, it, in terms of the book, Let's just take that title of the, of the first chapter, as you said, the black worker. He did not say the slave. He said the black worker, because in this book, he's trying without 100 percent success, but he's trying to integrate a racial analysis and a class analysis together. And as Skip said, labor is crucial to uh, his analysis. And indeed, he says, uh, Du Bois says that the tragedy of Reconstruction is that white laborers fail to see their community of interest with the emancipated slaves or the black workers. They, and he used this phrase, which later was picked up by David Rodiger and many others, the wages of whiteness. White privilege, if you want to use a modern term, uh, blinded white workers to the need to ally themselves with the aspirations of blacks. But just starting the book with slavery was itself a radical statement of historical analysis at that time. 
because the general view of historians was that slavery was really not that important uh, in the coming of the Civil War. You remember the Beardian approach dominated. This was a battle of white agrarians versus white industrialists. And uh, Beard once said, uh, I could write the whole history of the Civil War and never mention the word slavery. But Du Bois starts with slavery to say, no, this is about slavery and its aftermath. And slavery was the fundamental cause of the Civil War. Uh, that is taken for granted by historians today, but it certainly was not in the mid-1930s when Du Bois was writing. So let's take a step back here. and I'd like to ask, starting with you, Skip, how did you first learn about Du Bois' Black Reconstruction? When did you first read it? Oh, in uh, the 1969-1970 academic year at Yale University, when I took my very first course in what we then called Afro-American history, I soaked it up like a sponge. It was taught by a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, William S. McFeely, a great man whom I admired very, very much. And he had us read um, the propaganda of history, the essay on historiography the, of the racist historical accounts of, of Reconstruction. So we, I learned two things at the same time. One, about Reconstruction, and two, that the political stakes about the interpretation of Reconstruction were extraordinarily high. So, and I also learned, uh, we weren't using the word deconstruction at that time, but I learned that you could read closely and tear an argument apart and understand its ideological underpinnings. So it was a great pedagogical device for um, a sophomore at Yale. And I, um, you know, none of us 19 read 500, 700 pages of Black Reconstruction. I ain't gonna lie about that. <laughs> but in the propaganda of history, uh, Du Bois, even then, I think I understood when, if we could read sections of it, they're long, beautiful, poetic riffs on the, the coming of freedom. He called it the coming of the Lord in, in this section. And the, the, the voice of the spirituals, which Du Bois called the sorrow song. So much of this book has let me uh, think about Du Bois in his, as a, an historian. I always think about him as a literary scholar because that's what I am. But even his history is replete with poetry, even more important than his facts, was the fact that he was mounting a poetic defense of African-Americans and their humanities. And he has this great line about his own position in which he says, I write then in a field devastated by passion and belief. Naturally, comma, as a Negro, comma, I cannot do this writing without believing in the essential humanity of Negroes in their ability to be educated, to do the work of the modern world. So you knew that this was a brief for the humanity and the equality. I'm not talking about the equality before the law. I'm talking about the equality of persons of African descent on the great chain of being in the scale of nature. That was obvious to me, even as a sophomore. And you realize that the stakes were that high for Du Bois. So Eric, I know that uh, your family included historians of African-Americans uh, long before any of us were going to college and your family was involved in civil rights politics around New York City. So I imagine you had heard of W.E.B. Du Bois and Black Reconstruction before you were a sophomore in college. Du Bois was an acquaintance of my family, my, my parents. I, I think the first time I ever laid eyes on Du Bois 
was when I was quite young and we used to frequent one of these left wing summer uh, resorts up in the Catskill Mountains. And one day this short, very well dressed elderly man walked into the dining room, which was this big thing. And everybody got up and applauded. These were all old leftists of one kind or another. And of course, I didn't know what, what, were they, what was this about. And my mother just said, well, this is, doc, this is Dr. Du Bois. So I didn't know, you know, I was maybe five or six years old. I didn't know what Dr. Du Bois meant. But fast forward to 1960, when I'm a freshman in college at Columbia, and my brother and I are picketing Woolworths in New York in sympathy with the sit-in movement at Woolworth stores uh, in the South, the spring of 1960. And uh, my family visited Du Bois and his wife, Shirley Graham, uh, in Brooklyn at their house. And uh, we told him we'd been out picketing Woolworths. And Du Bois said, now here he's about in his early 90s, I believe, he said, I would like to pick it also, but surely won't let me. <laughs> he thinks he's too old to go out picketing Bullworth stores. Um, so that was the first time I met Du Bois. But it, in terms of reading the book, that came when I was a student a little later at Columbia. And the, a great teacher, James Shenton, I was in his seminar on uh, the Civil War Reconstruction era. And he assigned Du Bois and he said, you've got to read the whole 700 pages. <laughs> um, I'm not sure we read every single one, but he told us to do that. And uh, the, he's, the chairman of the history department, uh, according to Shenton, told him he was not supposed to assign Du Bois because it was not real history. <laughs> uh, he uh, didn't care about that and he assigned it and we discussed it. So that's when I first came upon Black Reconstruction and I got to know it very, very well later when I was working on my own uh, history of Reconstruction. Uh, John, if I may, one of the great honors of my life, uh, knowing about Eric's relationship to uh, the relationship of Eric's family to Du Bois, and then, you know, Eric had actually seen him. Du Bois died when I was 12, okay? So I never, I never saw him. But I revered Du Bois. The proudest thing in my collection, I'm a collector of Af Africana, I have the first edition of Souls of Black Folk in a dust jacket, <laughs> which I just got as a gift from some friends for my 70th birthday. But when we had the first screening of our Reconstruction series, I gave in front of hundreds of people, I gave Eric a gift. And, you know, Eric's so modest. And I said, unwrap it. You know, we're sitting on the stage with Kimberly Crenshaw and uh, I guess David Blight. And I said, unwrap it. And he unwrapped it. And what was it, Eric? Tell John what it was. Well, it was a copy of Black Reconstruction, first edition, inscribed by Du Bois to his daughter. Isn't that oh. correct? Oh, uh, that's correct. Wow. Yeah. Yolanda. So that was a very, uh, I, I, I cherished that uh, gift. I appreciated it then, and I appreciate now having it on my uh, shelf in my living room. <laughs> so, Skip, you first read this in... 1969, which was kind of a peak year of black militants. You're republishing it now. I first read one chapter. <laughs> okay, okay. Your introduction came in a peak year of black militants of 1969. You've edited a new edition of it in the world of Black Lives Matter. What's it like to read it now in the context of Black Lives Matter? You know, I've taught the literature from the slavery and the literature of the 19th century, 
since I was 26 years old. I've been teaching in the college classroom since that time, and I'm 71, so you can do the math. But it was only making this documentary that I really understood the rise of white supremacy and its history in um, the United States. And remember, of the 200,000 black men who fought in the Civil War, probably 145, 150,000 were not free in 1860. They were people who became free because of the Emancipation Proclamation. They were able to get behind, behind Union lines, then joined the United States Army and served. They became Lincoln's black warriors. So um, the Emancipation Proclamation not only freed um, the slaves, it empowered black men to shoot and kill white men, which was a quite a radical thing. Yes. This moment, it's like, it's almost as if, and Du Bois suggests this, that after the Civil War, after the elections of 1868, both white liberals in the North and the, the white, you know, former Confederates woke up and said, what the hell did we do? What did we do? And this is the result. And they were able, after 750,000 human beings died during the Civil War, they were able to put aside their differences, uh, uh, you know, overlook treason, overlook secession, put aside all those differences and decide they had more in common with each other than they did with Black people. That is the history of race in America. That's what you learn from studying Reconstruction. So my last question, given that people today can read Eric Foner's book on Reconstruction, given that we can watch the Henry Louis Gates four-hour series on Reconstruction on PBS anytime you want, uh, do you think people can still get something out of reading this 1935 book? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first of all, as Skip said, Du Bois is a poet as well as a historian and scholar, and it's just much of the book is just beautiful to read. I, I think what's really interesting is that the more you know about this period, the more you come to appreciate Black Reconstruction. How many current ideas he anticipated, starting with slavery as the fundamental cause of the Civil War and starting with Black people as key historical agents of change in that in that era. Frequently, I've had the uh, experience of dipping into uh, Black Reconstruction and say, wait a minute, I, th I thought of that. I thought I was original when I said that. <laughs> but actually, Du Bois anticipated me by 50 years or something like that, you know. So, uh, yes, there's plenty of modern scholarship. Some of it has uh, challenged or criticized some of Du Bois's uh, statements. But um, it's definitely well worth reading, especially in the condition that our country is uh, in today. He had to go back and write the record about the moment black rights had been snatched away. Black people had more rights in 1875 because of the Civil Rights Act for eight years until the Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional than they would have again till the mid-1960s. <laughs> it was such a crucial moment in the history of race in America. It is what could be, what could have been if the Supreme Court had not uh, denuded the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the Reconstruction Acts. What could have been if Black suffrage had been protected in the South? What could have been if there had been land redistribution? What could have been? It would have been a new world of race situated right here 
in the post-Civil War United States of America, but people decided it was not to be. Black Reconstruction, 1860 to 1880 by W.E.B. Du Bois has just been published by the Library of America in a new edition, edited by Eric Foner and Henry Louis Gates. Guys, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Great to talk to you, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.